You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori's Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today I have with me co-hosting Radhika Mulgupkar. Radhika, you are the head of methodology at Nori. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I know you're extra happy too because you've been eating our guest food for a very long time and I for a less amount of time, but still, you know, a Seattle favorite. Chef Renee Erickson, James Beard Award winner, chef and co-owner of Sea Creatures Restaurants and author of her latest cookbook, Getaway. Welcome to the show, Renee. Thank you. Happy to be here. I was telling Ross before the show got started that you're one of my like seminal food moments in Seattle. I, my husband and I went on one of our earliest dates at the original Boat Street Cafe and we had the chicken you mentioned in this cookbook and I still remember it. And it was right around the corner from like North Lake Tavern and such good memories. And I am so excited to meet you. And he's very jealous that he doesn't get to meet you. <laughs> I love it. Get the recipe for the chicken now. So that's good, right? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Though we can't recreate it the way you do, but it's a real treat to meet you. So thanks for being on the show. Of course. Happy to be here. Renee, what inspired you to write this particular cookbook? And right now, I imagine this took you longer than COVID, but it's so focused on travel in your favorite places that it probably hit that wanderlust that everyone's been missing from it's their been, lives. Oh man, um, it's been three years in the making. The last year was all kind of technical stuff and editing. And so now the intention of the book originally was much smaller. It was supposed to be a little book. That's what my agent told me when I was like proposing it to her. She's like, oh yeah, it'll be fine. It won't be a big deal. It'll be easy. And I, you know, I should have known better, but it is a book that started from the idea of aperitivi um, or apparel hour and trying to like have foods that are, you know, easy to put together, stuff that you can buy, stuff that's in your pantry, a lot of like things that you share with friends. And then, and then it grew a lot. And so when I started thinking about that time of day in regards to food and what I loved about it, it made me start to think about how I started in food, which wasn't really in food. It was, I was an art student um, at the University of Washington and ended up living in Rome at the Palazzo Pio, um, going to school in Palazzo Pio. And I lived about a 10 minute walk away. And so I would walk every day through Rome to this fabulous place near Campo dei Fiori and was just, you know, I was 20, I think, and never had understood that food was something that was not only for nourishment, but like total pleasure and like the entire day was planned around it. And that was, you know, not a very, at least my upbringing, you know, like we ate really well, we had a garden, we, you know, like there was obviously like celebrations and things, but it wasn't quite as compulsive as, as Italy, at least in Rome was. And so I thought it was fantastic and was very curious and spent a lot of time in shops and trying to understand all the different things that I didn't know about. And and then fast forwarding, kind of looking through my life as a cook, it became really clear to me that, that those kind of experiences have really driven the way I think about food and how I've learned about food in travel. And, and as being a someone who was, you know, really fortunate to get to go to school in Rome and then having a restaurant at a really young age gave me kind of a weird opportunity to like not have a lot of things. I mean, I had a business, but I also 
didn't know the rules of owning a business. So I would close for two weeks and go to France and try to like learn something. It was just, I was young and stupid and I just loved food. And so all of a sudden, you know, I've got, you know, many places over the years that have become really important to me. And I've have family friends now that, you know, or people that are friends that I feel like are my family in these places. And that became kind of the idea around the book where it was this like extension of my first book. And that the first book was really focused on the people here in Seattle that have been really important to me as a chef. And this kind of was the the like next ring out of all these places that have been, you know, have taught me so much. So yeah, it, it, it was supposed to be small. (laughs) It's not small. It's, it's a giant book. Now it's actually funny. I was signing my first book today. It makes me so happy because I love it so much, you know, and especially having spent so much time on getaway now that like to go, go back and look at it and feel like, Oh, look at that. You know, like it has the same kind of like, I mean, it's me, which is what feels really nice, especially to have it like bound up in a, thing where people can like read it and learn from it and, you know, experience some part of it. I think cookbooks have always been my favorite way. If I can't get on a plane, like that's what I do is read cookbooks and read about people's lives because I'm just so fascinated by it. That was a very long answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's such a beautiful cookbook. Both Ross and I commented on it. You can kind of see your artistic background in yeah. it. I love and, the blue edges of the pages yeah, too. Right. Yeah, they're fantastic. What a nice detail. And I will say you did a great job because one of my questions was like, this whole book is about these wonderful food memories you have of friends and family. It comes through so wonderfully in the book. And I was curious about what's your earliest memory of food in place? I saw you the clamming picture of, with your parents and I thought maybe that's what it was, but curious. It's, you know, I would say there's two that are the most vivid of being a kid is is being in a garden. So we had about two acres and my dad was a landscaper. So most of that was like trees that he was growing and things like that. But we always had a small garden. And I remember one of my chores was to weed the garden. And I think it was probably short-sighted on my mom's part to have me do that because I would sit and eat (laughs) you know, everything. So I would eat my way down the strawberry patch or I'd eat, you know, all the peas or something. So there's that, which, you know, that kind of eating is like unbelievable to be able to have something just pulled out of a garden. Um, And then, you know, very similarly, but from the water, having the time that we would spend up at the Tulalip Preservation, we had these amazing experiences with being on the water and like learning how to fish and catching crab. And, you know, there was he does, well, I don't even know if this man's alive anymore, but this guy would come and honk his horn on his boat and he would pull up on the beach and he had gone shrimping and he would have a little like steamer on his boat and he would steam all these shrimp and then they'd be sold to us warm in paper bags. And we would sit on this, you know, on a log basically and eat shrimp and throw the shells in the back in the water and like that kind of stuff. Like I know it exists, but not in my world anymore, at least not in the, the, the modern world of Seattle. Like that's not, I mean, it's probably legal. So <laughs> I don't think <laughs> you can't, you can't shrimp whenever you want anymore, which is good. Speaking of uh, what we're talking about today, but um, yeah, so it's all like, it's that kind of like really close to the source food that I think is such a, um, you know, gosh, such a huge problem in our world with food. So like trying to, you know, recreate or have people have access to something that's like full of life still is such a um, luxury and such a beautiful thing to get to experience. I think more and more, I wish it was, I, you know, I mean, it's one of the things I love about restaurants is trying to 
have relationships with farmers so that we get things, you know, as immediate as we can from being pulled pulled out of the ground or the, you know, oyster farm or whatever. So I think I originally pulled this insight from David Chang. He has some line about how like New York high cuisine is very much focused on transforming ingredients because the quality of the ingredients is lesser. I don't know if this is still sure. true. Maybe this is 20 years out of date. I don't know. But, <laughs> and then the West Coast is famous for Alice Waters, right? It's a carrot on a plate. That's what it is. Your food strikes me. I know this word is overused with cooking. It's not haunting. Whenever someone describes a flavor as haunting, I die a little inside. I'm sick, <laughs> I'm sick of that one. But like your food does seem rustic and ingredient forward. I I wish I had a better vocabulary than that, but is that halfway fair? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I think there's like lanes of of food. I think that, you know, chefs in particular get choose to live in and mine is try to get out of the way of whatever it is and and try to buy the best version of it. And um, not that it needs to be expensive, but that it should be like, you know, picked at the right time and seasonal and yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a trained chef either, and so I, my like love of food and cooking came from eating more so than like thinking about creating something in that way. Um, you know, I could watch a grandma anywhere in the world cook all day long, and I'd be so thrilled. You know, far more interesting than Food Network shows or you know like anything, any cool, you know, what do you call it? I don't even know what they're called. Tools. <laughs> Things that you make stuff look fancier with. I don't know. It's I'm way more interested in that than trying to recreate something that's already pretty perfect. I mean, I want to cook it sometimes, but yeah. It makes it more accessible to people like Radek and I who I'm enthusiastic. I don't know how skilled I am, but I am enthusiastic. <laughs> I think if you had something that involved tweezers or like a little bit more chefy, I think I would die in the making of these. What'd you cook well, out you of this, got- Radek? Do you know? Oh my gosh. Well, we cooked a ton of the toasts. So I'm a big fan of the toasts. It appears There's that you might be too. <laughs> yeah, you might be too, Renee. I mean, I just did the buckwheat flour uh, crepes with leeks and on Monday. What an amazing flavor combination that never occurred to me. We did almost the whole Roman section. We did Baja. Yeah. So we did we did a ton of it. Our kids tend towards the Baja flavors more. So that was probably the most successful family-wise. But those crepes yesterday or Monday were awesome. Yeah. I mean, like that that's a really good contrast, Normandy to Baja, you know, like and yeah. I think oftentimes that's been the curious question for everyone is like, how did those two end up together? And for me, I think the ingredient part of a place, you know, like when you travel somewhere and there's something so familiar or, and also so not familiar, and then to see how they've created things and, be, you know, things have become tradition, clearly, especially in that, in you know, with buckwheat in Normandy is so, I don't know, I just love it. Like it's the best part, you know, it's the best part of travel to me is is learning those sort of things become really normal in a place that are totally new to me. So yeah, a buckwheat crepe with, you know, cheeses and hams and apples or whatever you put in it is so traditional and, you know, nothing I would have grown up with, you know, so even though we have all those things here, so. Yeah, that that's what I uh, actually loved the most about that crepe, well, at least for me, was it was a combination of the cosmic crisp apple and the, you know, <laughs> so a little Washington thrown in with yeah. a little France. Yeah, so, I love that too. That's fun. Yeah, I like I like combining traditions in interesting ways. But anyway, Ross, what did you cook? We didn't hear your list. I cooked a bunch too. I mean, the crostini was a big hit. I liked those, especially the, the ricotta and roasted cherry tomato crostini with too much olive oil. 
I liked it. I also liked many of these required strange ingredients that I had never heard of, like pipara peppers. Is that what they are? I was like, where the hell do I find pipara peppers? I went to a bunch of stores and I sounded cool, but I didn't find them. I had to order online. We've been buying those for a long time. A friend of mine um, is from Spain and he had a, a he in, imported all of these ingredients. And so we were snacking on those many years ago, even at the early boat street days, which is, they're, they're fun too. Cause they're not hot. You know, they're just like super green and, you know, intense flavored vegetal, not, not spicy. So yeah. It was a good use of brininess and acid. Another case of that too, was I made these slow braised shallots with cider and using the cider in that way too. Yeah. Did you make those Radica? <laughs> I did not get around to making those. I mean, as Renee pointed out, it's a very big cookbook. So I, <laughs> it's on my list. Don't we worry. I, I love shallots. So I'm excited to make those. I bought all the shallots at the store when I went. The guy's like, <laughs> you want three pounds of shallots? It's like, yeah. I like, guess what she said. <laughs> <laughs> That's the mantra in the house right now, Renee. What Renee says, we do. So we don't mess with your recipes at all. <laughs> You can don't don't feel obliged to follow them verbatim. They're they're intended as guides more than anything. So you could have got half the shallots. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind for next time. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so listeners might be puzzled because we haven't brought up climate change quite yet, and maybe they can discern some links to this from how we're talking about this. Seems like there's some natural links here to trying to eat locally, trying to eat seasonally. Is that still a paradigm that people concerned with um, the environment and its links with food should care about? Is that a good way to think about it? Is that too big of a question for you? Yeah, it's absolutely something I think more people should be thinking about. I still don't think it's that. I mean, I've been in a many grocery stores all over America and it's kind of frightening. The, it's just like whatever all the time, no matter what, we have it. And you know, like our idea around food is so, I don't know. It's like, it's just that. It's just like, you want to have it. Okay. I'm going to go get it because I can, you know, I don't eat tomatoes until, unless they're canned tomatoes that I've canned until July, late July in Washington. Cause they're terrible for one. They taste like crap. They're expensive and I don't need them, you know, cause they're not good. And so I think people don't people, I wish people would kind of consider that more when they're thinking about food and what, what is actually good versus what they just assume is good because it's available. An example too that you've institutionalized is how Bateau treats beef. Yeah, I mean I would say that although I think we've done a pretty good job of being mindful or at least considering a lot of that, I think, you know, that is still something that I'm wrestling with. I know that we're buying a whole cow usually or always and utilizing everything, which is really hard to do. It takes a ton of effort and planning and creativity around cooking. And then it also takes a lot of willing customers to experiment on things that aren't necessarily what maybe they don't want to have when they go out for a steak. But, you know, it's the reality of how food used to be. And I think how it, I wish it was because we're really wasteful in, in uh, wanting, you know, like the prime cut and not having to think about like, why we eat too much meat, you know, like there's so many like issues around that, I think, in regards to like, you know, A, is it okay to eat beef? Like, that's a huge conversation now, obviously, with all the pollution that that causes. And then, you know, how how would we get away from that? And so, you know, I struggle with that still, where I'm just like, well, maybe we shouldn't do it at all. Um, I'm hopeful that, you know, there's some place in the world that we can get to where 
responsibly purchasing, you know, a whole animal in a way that by a farmer who's, you know, farming it responsibly without creating a lot of carbon emissions for that would be great. I mean, I don't want to give it up, but, you know, we also were constantly like kind of looking at what we're doing and how we can be better. I think we're not really, we don't feel satisfied, I guess is what I'm saying with the way, the way restaurants function and the way we function within them too. I think, you know, we have a lot of learning and an effort to be made still. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a lot to unpack for sure. You're not going to go vegan like Daniel Hum. I am grateful that he's doing that. I think it's pretty bold. I mean, it's, it's very bold. I think it helps to be a restaurant that has a history of more, I don't know, molecular is the right word, but like kind of farther away from like the whole piece of fish or whatever, you know, like it's more kind of like food that's been that evolves more before it hits the plate. But yeah, I mean, it's all it's all part of, I think, a conversation that we all have to be willing to talk about. You know, we can't just like keep our head in the sand and think that like, well, it's just my one restaurant. How big of an impact is it? It's it's a lot. You know, by doing it, we're basically saying it's okay for one. And so I don't know. Like I'm I'm definitely like I I talk about never buying salmon again. You know, with my chefs, like we you know we don't buy any king salmon, and that's good. I don't know that it makes any difference, but not even um, like Bristol Bay, where I think I think it's okay up there. You do buy Bristol Bay, but you know so. We don't buy, so, you know, like by, when you think of buying local, like we would want to buy fish from Washington, which we don't buy any salmon from Washington right now. We have in the past, um, there's like right now, all there is, is the spring Chinook, which I won't buy. Cause that's like the, if there is a big fish that the orca whales will survive on, it's that one, which isn't, you know, those runs are terrible. If you read the like Washington fishing game page, like everything is bad on the salmon runs. And so, so yeah, so we're trying, you know, like Bristol Bay, we're trying to support, we do, we buy a lot of frozen fish and use that because I think it's a way to support fisheries, you know, in a way that like allows the fish to actually be better than a lot of the fish that people are buying, which is unfortunate. I think people think that fresh salmon's better, but it's not always I think often it's not. I mean, even in Seattle, like the fish that gets in Seattle is still sometimes two weeks old. So, you know, if it's sitting at the bottom of a tender, they wait to fill it up with fish. You know, it's iced, but it's still, you know, sitting there. And then eventually it makes it to the cannery and then it gets put on a box and flown to SeaTac or wherever. And then eventually in a warehouse and then eventually in my restaurant. And we just bought some um, Copper River sockeye from, we buy from Drifters, um, which is a husband and wife team that fish. Um, the river there, and then we'll buy stuff from Bristol. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's never ending. Like, I feel like there's one, you know, it feels like whack-a-mole where, you know, you're like, okay, we're going to not do this now. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, shit, now I'm, now I'm buying this. Like, is that okay? You know? So I don't know. I mean, I think the hard part as a consumer is no one has time really to like spend unpacking like the grocery store of items you know you hope that people are doing a good job but they're not there's no real way to know what's good you know unless you do the research which is really exhausting so your previous cookbook though is is ordered in terms of seasons right a boat a whale and a walrus and i also read six seasons recently i cook out of that one a fair amount too and i find that to be it's easy to be environmentally friendly. You're not shipping stuff across the ocean when it's delicious and something that is fresh picked and actually not traveling super far. It isn't a sacrifice. 
In fact, it's often better. Yeah. Yeah. I think the challenge is cost. I think people have gotten to a place where food is supposed to be cheap and, you know, it, it really isn't for it to be grown well and the people that are growing it are living lives that are healthy and, you know, they can feed their family and go to the doctor or go on vacation, God forbid, you know, do all the things that we all want to do. Most of the food in the world isn't that. It isn't farmed by people that are respected and given lives that are healthy and happy. So I think until we really recognize that and become a culture that isn't okay with that, then I think it's going to be, you know, it becomes like a luxury thing and it shouldn't be, you know, we should be able to have good food that's nutritious and locally grown and not, I mean, I, you know, like I, I think we should be able to have like people making enough money so that they can buy the foods that are from that place, you know, whether it's the farmer's market or whatever, rather than having to buy at a mini market or that part of it really makes me the most mad that our government and our society has kind of perpetuated the idea of cheap food and, and that it's okay to have cheap food over a nutritious, you know, food that's local. <laughs> no, in your, in your like substantial food empire in Seattle, is there any place that has a sort of working class availability is that just impossible to do as an individual or as an entrepreneur? Is this some, something that needs to happen at a policy level? Is it impossible for you, even if you wanted to? To make like less expensive food? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, or have like an old like canteen kind of approach or something. I think it's two things, right? I don't know that like fine dining or restaurants, I don't think that's our job, really. I think it's more that like we need to have, I don't think that the only good food should be expensive food, you know? And so, but I, I'm, I mean, I, I think there are places that are doing like, there's an organization in, in Seattle called Green Plate Special. that's like a two acre, I think it's two, no, two lot, not two. I wish it was two acre, but it's a farm that teaches kids how to raise vegetables and cook with them. And, um, and they sell their food, which I love. And I think we just need people, you know, it's not unlike the, like the schoolyard project where there's food that can be grown. That's, nutritious and good and fresh and seasonal that doesn't have to be crazy expensive. I think I'm at the point where I'm like, I'm sure I could do that. I just don't know that I have the bandwidth to start a canteen, but I think we do a lot of other like fundraising things and that sort of stuff that does promote that sort of thing, like including with green plate special, but yeah, I don't know. It's a great idea. And you know, that's not true. I think that, you know, like Mel at Moosang here in Seattle, she's been doing a lot like the community kitchen stuff during the pandemic that has been feeding people her community which is awesome i don't know yeah i mean it's all part of like trying to come to a place where like we if we have to like flip everything upside down and try to look at food in any way don't mean to put you too much on the spot there just a question of like <laughs> I'm is mostly it structural like, I don't want or, a project not? mostly yeah. i'm like, so tired <laughs> you know the book kind of what you know the book project was great but then to have it come out while we're trying to like dig out of a pandemic has been a bit challenging but it's also really fun to think about travel and people that I haven't seen for a long time. So, yeah, I was going to ask you, what's the first place you're going to visit now that the world is reopening? Right. We're going to Baja actually in a few weeks. Um, my friends, Diana and Carla, who are featured in the book, we're going to do a dinner down there. So we're going to, um, he has been, you know, really Baja. I mean, that part of Baja is pretty undeveloped, which I love. There's, um, it's, you know, surf towns and farms, really, which is pretty spectacular. And 
So we're going to do a dinner for 30 people at his surf shack on the beach. So, I mean, I want to know how I get on that invitation list. Like, can you make 31? <laughs> I'm just there are uh, seats available still. So it's um, June 14th. Yeah, Monday, June 14th. You just have to get to Cerritos Beach in Baja and we'll feed you. Yeah, we're, let's see, his uncle has a, he like harvests sea snails. So we're going to make some sea snails and then blood clams are a big deal down there. So the big clams. So there's the recipe in the book. So we're going to do those with the salsa matcha. Well, I mean, I think what's fun is we're, I send pictures to Dano all the time. I'm like, what about this? And so lately it's been grilled watermelon with um, grilled big prawns from Baja with like serrano chilies, tried serrano chilies and going back and forth. And I'm going to get there and the day before we'll basically go to the farm and see what's available and harvest tomatoes. Hopefully is what I'm dreaming of because it's not a bad time to eat tomatoes in Mexico. And then the fishermen will bring what they have. So I love that. I don't want to overplan because then I'm going to miss out on something that just happens to show up which I think is, would be nice if that was more how we, uh, you know, lived our lives a little bit. I know it's like decadent to think of it that way, but that was, I think originally what made it so inspiring about being in Rome was the idea that, you know, people walk by and if they didn't have artichokes, they would buy fennel, you know, whatever was there versus like forcing this situation to happen that then requires someone to be farming it out of season and making it so that whenever your artichoke whim happens, you get them. I mean, the way you describe it sounds absolutely dreamy. I I do wish we could have a life like, like that. I don't know how you unwind the rest of life, right? It's just so complex, but. I know. And I feel like, I feel like it definitely got worse this year. You know, it didn't get easier at all. Nope. I don't know. I mean, I think it might be that, you know, I think the to-go food situation back to kind of having things that are maybe less expensive is a, is a way to do that because it doesn't require the infrastructure of staff, you know, like service staff and, mm-hmm. you know, all of that. But yeah, I don't know. Meal kits. I like that too, but I'm watching a crow across the street eat something. <laughs> what do you have? <laughs> Urban living. Um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I wish I had, I wish I knew the answer. I know it is, um, it might not be possible, but I do hope for that where people can, I don't know, just work less for God's sakes too. You know, where like food and being with people doesn't have to just be Sunday, you know, because it's so important. I think we all just get kind of spun out and especially now with email, I was like, well, this is a good example. Like my book, the first book came out before Instagram, or at least before I was on Instagram. Turns out it was so much easier to launch a book without Instagram. It's just like one less thing to do. Although like you have all these great connections because of it, but oh my God, like, you know, every day you're like, what do I have to do on Instagram? You know, blah, blah, blah. And you just start to feel like a robot. That that like meal kit thing. Now that the pandemic is at least more manageable with people getting vaccinated, I want glamour. I want to go out and dress up. I like Canlis, of course, in Seattle. It's like the meal kits and all of their like pickleball and stuff. It's like, this yeah. is this is pretty fun. I like that y'all are rolling with the punches so hard. But also, I don't want anything like that. Now I want a restaurant to be a restaurant again. I want to come into the walrus and the carpenter. And I want to eat oysters at happy hour. And I don't want you to give me oysters to go or something. I'd be like, that's, not, that's not what I'm here for. I mean, that makes me happy because I think... You know, restaurants in the last 10 years have become such a huge part of our, our lives, you know, which was never, certainly even 25 years ago, it wasn't the case or even 15, really, like it's exploded and that people are 
at least in Seattle, much more social in that way, which I really love. I think it's become such an important part of people's you know, week. But yeah, I think I'm, I'm excited about that. It's going to be an interesting summer to see how people behave and how wild everyone gets. And yeah, it'll be, I'm excited. It's a little crazy, but. I got to echo exactly what Ross was saying. I cannot wait. And we've tried, and the, the thing is we've tried last week to go, we're like, we're just going to be spur of the moment and try to get reservations. And there was nothing available at all. No. Well, we have half the tables and everyone yep. in the entire city wants to eat out every night now, which is great. So my tip is eat early or eat late. That's the Seattle like crutch is everyone. Jo- we I have a friend who wants to name a restaurant, seven o'clock, big red wine, and <laughs> <laughs> which I think is hysterical, but so true. Like everyone wants to eat at seven o'clock and most people want red wine, but yeah. So if you want to, I eat, will eat at five thirty and drink some white wine just to go. get in. <laughs> yeah, funny because that was a trick somebody told me about about bateau. Go in early, then you get your choice of anything you want. And so we, yeah, <laughs> yeah on the yeah, board. It's still the dams. You know, we still are uh, socially distanced, and so we have half the tables, and we're at fifty percent inside. Or I think yeah, we're at fifty percent. So. Hopefully, we'll see what happens in the next month if that disappears, which feels like so exciting and so bizarre to imagine, like a room full of people. I mean, I can't wait. Like, it's one thing I miss the most is sitting at a bar and staring at a bartender and, you know, the noise of a restaurant and, yeah, just snooping and, you know, like eavesdropping (laughs) and what other people are doing and eating and, you know, like just being around people you don't know. And, yeah, I miss that a lot. The Harvest Vine Bar was one of the best spots in Seattle, right? Like watching them cook, talking with them, and then listening to the conversations around. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it's so, it's such a, yeah, it's so important, you know, to just not have a plan too. like, just kind of see what, like you're saying, like spur the moment. It's a nice, the nice thing. Hopefully by summer, that'll be easier because hopefully we'll have more tables. Yeah, that's tough. Was well, your plan to? I'm glad you y'all sea creatures survived seemingly. I guess I don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but seems like you did okay. And <laughs> debt is what's happened. A lot of debt. Okay, I didn't want to pry, but <laughs> is okay. it? Is your plan basically to just get your feet on the ground, try to get back to normal? Because you're, I feel like there's so there's so many tentacles in this. In this, yeah, uh, yeah it's, we're bigger than we ought to be. We have six of the 10 restaurants open um, trying to get, I mean, so with the PPP loans through the government, um, which is really the only thing that saved us, we have, you know, there's, we don't want more debt. So we have to be really diligent about making sure that we have staff here when the guests are here so that we can get it forgiven, um, which is, thankfully, that's not the math that I have to do. My business partner does that, but you know, our goal is to be open all the way. We don't know. Like, it's hard to say, like, what it's going to be like. I mean, I'm I'm happy that both of you are very excited about going out to eat. Part of me was, like, kind of starting to worry. I'm like, are people going to get so excited about cooking at home all the time that they're going to eat out less? Because people ate out a lot before the pandemic, which, you know, was awesome. Because it was very different than, like, the go out for your anniversary kind of diner 
but yeah, so we're, you know, we're going for it. We're going to open as much as we can back up and we have leases and, you know, loans and all, you know, we have to open. We don't, you know, what, I don't know what else to do. We're all tied to it personally. And, um, you know, you kind of have to survive it. So, you know, we've been really lucky to have staff that have endured it with us so that we can open back up and summer is here, which is great. The vaccines, I think, couldn't have come at a better time. I mean, it's like unreal, really. It feels like such a huge emotional boost to feel like we can, you know, be safe and hug people. My favorite new thing in the world to do is just hug anyone. <laughs> it's so good. I'm like, wait, I'm not done. <laughs> like, like the longer, the, the like hug that used to creep me out. I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to keep hugging you for a minute. But yeah, so we're busy. We're going to open up. We opened up Pioneer Square General Purpose, um, which is, you know, there's not a lot happening down there, but we have a really great neighbor that we want to support. And yeah, we're just trying to be be around because the city is so, you know, everything just moved out. So I think until people, it's not going to all happen at once. I think there's this idea that like, we're going to take the boards down and things are going to be good again, but it's going to take a long time for enough people to show back up or, or, you know, build new businesses that go back into the places where there's been businesses that have shut down. Well, I'm optimistic and I'm looking forward to seeing what the Seattle restaurant scene creates because it's been like you, to your points earlier, what a fantastic last decade it's been here. So I'm really excited to see what new comes out, but I want to know what your favorite Seattle restaurant is. That's not your own. So on a night where you might want to go out to a restaurant, where would you head out to? Oh man. Um, I don't know that I have a favorite. I have a lot of favorites. Uh, I just ate at Cafe Lago uh, last Saturday and I hadn't eaten there in probably two years, which I sound like a customer, people that I like, I'm like, oh, thanks. But I love Carla and, and her food. And I was, it was the first restaurant I ate at indoors. And I think, you know, for me, like what, it was funny because it's, you know, Italian, obviously she's from Tuscany and I wanted to go there, I think mostly for nostalgic reasons. Like, you know, it was a place that felt really, you know, it was like a place that I went to when I was young, learning how to cook. Um, And it's food that is, you know, I know exactly, I knew exactly what, it's like we were talking about earlier, like it's, I knew that I wanted her lasagna and her caponata and yeah, it just like felt like home to me. And so that's a place that I love. I eat a lot of Italian food, it seems like. Um, Delancey is not open, but I go there a lot. We walk there from my house. I love Delancey. Um, Brandon worked with me for a long time. And same thing, it feels like you're in someone's kitchen, which I love. I think that's the part. I mean, I think also being in, having my own restaurants, I like to go places where like I don't get food sent to me. I don't want to, you know, I just want to like go in and eat food and feel normal and not think about work. And so if someone wants to talk to me about restaurants, when I'm at their restaurant, it's hard because I just want to not think about it. And so Brandon and I have a pack where we don't talk about it when we're each in each other's restaurants so that we can just eat pizza and drink wine. I love, I'm trying to think of where I just ate at um, uh, Local Tide in Fremont. It's a sweet sandwich shop that has really beautiful, all local sustainable seafood. That's he's doing a really great job. I think it's really fun. I, I think what I'm most excited about is uh, when you're talking about like what's going to happen with the food scene is it's like, there's going to be a lot of like 20 somethings that are going to open restaurants and it's going to be awesome because they're going to be 
they won't have, you know, it'll, it'll be like me 25 years ago, but better because the food's better. People are more interested in, in eating kids, you know, call them kids. Young people are way more cultured than I certainly was at 20. I mean, like, it's amazing what, you know, the food that they can create and are willing to experiment with. So that to me is the most exciting part about all of this is there's going to be a, a lot of food that is bold and and personal which i think is something that has been is missing in food in a lot of cases i think people create food for what they think people want versus creating food for themselves and i think there's like there's definitely in the last year particularly like a permission given to just be like fuck it i'm going to cook what i want to cook and it's what my mom taught me or it's you know from where my family's from or you know i think that's can i swear i just swear sorry i'm like <laughs> Damn. I can mark it as explicit now. But it's like-, <laughs> like all of a sudden I'm like, oh man. Um, but yeah, like that, you know, that's the kind of world that I'm excited about. There's a place not far from my house called Gracia, Mexican food that I really love. So the bagel craze, holy hell, there's bagels everywhere. And I finally, I was like, all right, I should probably, probably have a bagel. Cause I like grew up on like bagels in college, which I'm like, they're fine, but are you talking about like mountain bagel? Is that what you're talking about? I haven't had those, but yeah, like all of that, where it's just so many bagels. But I went to, um, it's now called Rachel's Bagel, but it was Pork Chop & Co. in Ballard. So I had the tuna fish bagel. It was delicious with za'atar all over it. So I don't know. Where else do I eat? There's so many good places. You gave us plenty of places to think about, Renee. You're repping, <laughs> repping Ballard so hard. So. Our friend, you know, it's, it's what I do when I get home. I'm like, I'm not going to drive to wherever. Um, Yasuwaki, who's the one of the owners of London Plane, just opened um, Saint Bread, which I've not been to yet. So that's on my list. I've tried and it's been sold out a few times. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna. I know he's probably going to be like, shut up, Renee, you can come anytime. But um, <laughs> yeah, you got to pull your chef card out. <laughs> I, know, right? like, I don't want to do that. But yeah, I'm I'm just excited about people making food that makes them happy for a change than trying to make us happy, you know, as guests. I think that will happen if you make food that you love. So no, I love stuff like that too. I've been reading Dominique Krenn's book. I'm just like, yeah, just, just cook that beautiful food from from Brittany. And like it reminds you of home. And there's something that's like distinctly sad about like a restaurant that's doing like a filet mignon and like a mushroom sauce and you're like oh, Yeah. Do you even do you even care? Do you are right. you have you ever been to France? No. Like yeah. no one cares. I think that's the thing. It's I, I really hope that people just really embrace the idea that culturally like diverse food is so much better than all that same shit that you would get at a hotel or whatever that became like what was considered food. And it really never was, but nobody thought about it. They just were like, oh, it's what I'm supposed to think is good. So it must be. And now it's just, you know, gloves are off. It's so exciting to see that, you know, we're I think Seattle is a really great place for it because we have such amazing food already. So yeah. And then all the ingredients and everything. So Misha, I've been to in Fremont is really great too. Um, Indian food. Love it. Misha. Yeah. She, um, there was just a great story about um, her and Mel getting the other woman's name was bad, but just talking about like women opening restaurants during the pandemic in Seattle and how badass they are and proof that like, I think if you do love what you're doing and you're proud of it in a time where people actually hopefully are 
caring, you know, more than historically, it will make like for the greatest experiences. So yeah, but her food's delicious. It's in Fremont. So I was close to Ballard. So I was driving home and I was like, Ooh, I'm going to get this food. And we've been back a few times. I haven't eaten in yet, but I've taken it out a lot and it's delicious. And it, it, yeah, I just love all those flavors. I'm so, it's just so good. Well, Renee, obviously listeners should go out and buy your book getaway, which is beautiful and a very delicious Radhika, You give a thumbs up. <laughs> I, 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 would, I will keep cooking out of this thing. It's, it's for sure. Is there any way else that uh, listeners, if they dig what you're about, can support you? Oh, man. I mean, I think eating out as much as you can, not even just for me, but like, you know, if, if you have the ability to do so, like, go, don't bring your gift cards for one. <laughs> Wait a year on the gift cards if you can. If you can't, then come use them. And yeah, just, you know, be patient. I would say restaurants are, not that I want to like give excuses for things, but it's just, everything's like so much harder during, you know, trying to serve people and be safe and all of that. So, I mean, I think now we're hopefully like through the worst part of it, but you know, it has not been an easy year for anyone that's worked out in the world, especially in hospitality. So getting, just come and have fun and eat lots, drink white wine. (laughs) (laughs) You you hate red wine or you just think it's like red wine. I just think it's funny. I mean, I think in the 20, however, 25 years of doing this, like I think originally I would have just been like, you know, lots of eye rolls for people that would drink red wine with oysters. And now I'm just like, oh shit, I don't care. Just do what you want. But I still don't think it's a good idea. So, you know, white wine and rosé. So much better with food. Be quite overpowering. I don't know know if people have a sophisticated palate to know. Time and a place for sure. I mean, I do love some red wine, but not at the beginning of my meal. That's for sure. Yeah. I don't know. Just happy that people still want to come out to eat. So that, that, that feels good. We can speculate wildly on that mystery another time, I think. But in the meantime, thanks for being with us, Renee. That was super fun. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. Thanks. Yeah. See you soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.